But if you are new here today, we've been walking through a new series, and it's titled The Journey of a Lifetime. You'll notice that picture there, the guy walking up that hill toward the sun. But this journey really is about a couple of things. One of them, it's moving towards spiritual maturity in our own lives. But there's another piece to it as well. It's really what does it mean to present another person mature in Christ? And I want to put up the theme verse for you for this morning, Colossians 1, 28 and 29. And this is these two verses are kind of where we're the, the whole framework of our series. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. Now, churches often talk about spiritual maturity, but I think one of the lacking pieces here is that oftentimes we don't define it well. What does that really mean? And I think if I were to do kind of illustration, if I were to say, here's Jack over here, would you go help Jack walk toward Jesus, help him move towards spiritual maturity? And the question would be, where do you start? What are the things that Jack would need to know? What are the things that Jack would need to understand and even apply to his heart? What are the things that, skills actually, what, that he might need in terms of, of skill development, even in the spiritual realm? But in that, we've been using 1 John 2 really to describe and kind of set the framework of a description of three different phases moving towards spiritual maturity. In that passage, I'm not going to put it on the screen, but it's 1 John 2. It talks about children, and it talks about young men and fathers. Now, I understand this isn't biological age. This is spiritual age. And you could also put young uh, women and, and moms and mothers as well in, in place of that. It's not gender-specific at all. And, and parents, I, I just hope you realize the the relevance of this of this uh, series here in terms of your training your children. The challenge I think in our day and age is we use the word nurture in parenting. I got to nurture my kids, and I think that needs to get flipped over to say what does it mean to disciple our children. See, that's a different word, and I think it means a whole lot more. Even when you think of educational development in the schools, some of you are teachers. There's clear. Uh, movement of, of first graders need to do this and sixth graders and going to college. Well, why don't we ever apply that even in the spiritual realm of helping people move toward a destination? But in doing so, I want to put a picture on the screen as an illustration here. We used this last week, and this is the bridge between looking in from Hudson, Wisconsin, back across the St. Croix River to uh, Minnesota. But think of it this way. You're on the Wisconsin side. You're a child in the faith. You're a Packer fan in Wisconsin. The, the, we're supposed to grow, right? So we cross that bridge into Minnesota, and you learn that as a child you put away those foolish things like the Packers, and you move to, to the Vikings, and they start growing in your faith. Now, I offended some people in the first service because they were Packer fans, but that's okay. But the illustration of movement across to a new destination, spiritually speaking. But let me put another picture on the screen. I don't know if you realize this. This is the exact picture of the pillars that are underneath that bridge from Hudson to Minnesota. And the illustration goes like this. What are the pillars that we need in our lives to move from a child 
in our faith to becoming a young man, young woman in the faith. And these pillars are the key concepts and understandings of where we need to go. Now, let me just give you the first pillar that we threw out last week, and it's this, an essential pillar of maturing. A spiritual child must learn to discern the lies of Satan and the lies of this world in order to move toward maturity. And where do I get that from? Well, let me put up 1 John 2, verse 13. In that text, it says this, I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. See, the idea there that a young man in their faith moving from children to young man, that something is taking place with their understanding of sin in terms of their understanding the dimensions of who Satan is and where he's at, and, it's, and as well as the struggles with with, with the flesh and even farther on, but there's an overcoming piece that's taking place. But what does this practically mean? I, I think that's the challenge for us today. And if you missed last week, I'd encourage you to go back and listen. We put them online again. But last Sunday, we spent a bunch of time in Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden, looking at this lie that was happening between Satan tempting Adam and Eve, trying to pull them in a new direction, and they believed the lie, and they really succumbed, and it changed the world forever. But I want to point out this lie that we, were, we looked at last week, and look what it says here, the lie. It's really a series of a number of lies, but God is withholding something good from you, and he now cannot be trusted. And because God cannot be trusted, you now can claim the right to decide what is good, what is best, what is morally right. You now have freedom to live independently from God. You, you catch the, the dimensions of believing Satan and where he tempted them and where do they where they're to go. But out here's what I want to do today. I want to even go farther than we did last week, and we need to dig down into some realities of sin and the understanding of it in a way that really, I think, needs to become practical in our lives and even when we're talking with people, when we're talking with our kids. And I've used these levels of sin, and I call them the levels of sin. I've used them in multiple settings, high school, singles, uh, marriage counseling, whatever. But here's the levels of sin. It's four realities of sin. I'm going to fill in your notes right off the bat here so we kind of get that out of the way. The first level of sin. Sin is breaking a moral law. You lie. You steal something. You murder somebody. That's a, it's a moral action that everybody can see. But there's a second level of sin. Sin goes beyond moral actions, but it can include our deepest thoughts by thinking evil things, we forget at times that that reality is sin. And yet no actions have occurred. But there is a third level to sin. And the third level is this. We claim the right to be our own God. And now decide what is good. What is justified, and that's a key word here, and we decide what is now sinful and what's wrong and really what's right as well. But there is a fourth level we're going to add today. Level four, outward sin, thought sin, 
deciding to be God's sin comes from a heart of pride and consuming self-love. Now, here's where we're going to do something just a little bit different today. And uh, I'm going to invite Scott up. Scott is, Bainville is the chairman of our elder board. And we're going to do a little role playing just to kind of add a nuance here to this morning as we go through this. And again, uh, I've used this, what I'm doing with him, I've used it in marriage counseling. I've used it in all different kinds of, of, of settings. But Scott is actually here for some marriage counseling today. I don't know if you know, but his marriage is in is hurting a little bit. Life isn't working so well for him. Now, just so you know, that's not necessarily true. Right, Scott? Necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. He's doing, he's doing well. But he, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk through, and we're just going to carry on a little bit of a conversation. I'll turn to you guys and, and say some things as well, but just to kind of change the flavor of the day here. Um, so Scott has come in. And I ask him kind of what's going on in their marriage and what's really what he thinks are some of the issues that are taking place. So we kind of get through some of those introductions uh, in that way. But then I'm looking for a spot oftentimes. By the way, this isn't the only thing I do in marriage counseling. So you got to be I want to make sure that there's a lot more to it. A lot of people don't even know what a good definition of marriage is, what a good marriage is. Kind of look at their moms and dads and go, oh, that's a great marriage. And, you know, and they were no. Uh, so we're going to go far. But I would kind of get through the kind of some of the introduction stuff, and then I, I look for an open door, and I say something like this: "Hey, Scott, do you think that sin might be a part of the issue of why your marriage is struggling?" No, not at all. Why would you say that? Well, I'm a good person. Okay. She's got the problems. She's got the problem. Okay. <laughs> we see where we got the problem already here, don't we? Um, Scott, can I, let me ask you another question. What is your understanding, or better yet, what is your, how do you define sin? How did you, what did your parents teach you about what is sin? Well, sin was doing the wrong thing. It was uh, breaking those commandment things. I think there's eight or nine of them. Um, <laughs> and it wasn't hurting people. It wasn't lying to people, though I did it quite often. I wasn't cheating. Well, I guess I did some of that. It wasn't stealing, but oh, might have taken a couple things. Is it fair to say that that sin for you is breaking the rules, doing something bad? Then, if that oh, would be the de summary, definitely, yeah. Okay, let me ask, push you farther though. If, if you break the really bad ones, do you think you're a bad person or a good person? I guess I'd be a bad person if I broke the bad, but I don't break the bad ones. Okay, you don't. Okay, so if you break just a few, then how would you view yourself? I'm a pretty good guy. Okay. Well, can I can I push you just a little bit farther in this understanding, and maybe how actually sin would play into marriage and life in general? Because the reality is, some stuff I want to present to you. We all struggle with it. it, it whether you're married, single, it, it's really other issues that go beyond just the marriage. But I want to show you a picture here. Here's a house. And, and this house represents people's understanding of sin. Matter of fact, when, if you were to go out and just on the street and ask people, what is sin? You're going to find that what you, were, what you were saying really is at the heart of what people believe. That sin is about stealing 
or lying or beating somebody up or some kind of evil thing that they've done. It's really essentially it's breaking a moral law, doing something bad. But here's the deal. When you find that people believe is, and when they stay only on this level, another attitude develops in terms of the way they view themselves as either being good or bad. And I want to put a picture on the screen. Look at this idea of a scale. And, and here's how this works. If I do enough good things on that scale, it weights down and you look at yourself, people look at themselves and go, you know, I'm not that bad. I'm a pretty good person. You know, I, I give my money to the poor. I help people. I help little ladies cross the street, all of those things. You understand, you do things, and then you are a good person. But if you do a whole bunch of bad things, then they go, yeah, you know, I might be a bad person. And, and a lot of people, you know, as they're, they struggle with the issue of sin and being, you know, you know they get frustrated with their lives and here's what I think they end up doing. They try to do good things then to weight down and change their attitude. And, and you, you go, you think that's how you've lived your life? Well, I try. I really try hard to not do those, those bad things. And okay. I, so help, then, I help little old ladies. <laughs> so therefore, you, we define ourselves as we... We're good. We do good things. It's kind of a righteous person in people's eyes. We hope that other people view us as righteous as well and, and a good person. But here's where I got to go farther. I want to put another picture on the screen because realize this. In that house, there's actually a basement. And on this basement, there's a sign on the wall that says, when one thinks, when you think evil thoughts, and it's still sin. One can think something bad, and it's the same as sin. Now, you might ask, you, you know, where, Ken, where did you get that from? Well, let me put a passage, Matthew chapter 5, verse 28 on the screen. Look at what it says here. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Scott, what do you think that's saying? Are you telling me, Ken, that thinking evil thoughts is the same as sin? Um, actually, I'm not saying it. Jesus is saying it. That was the words there of Jesus. He's, and you understand how subtle then sin can be. Because we, we, we look at that, that's the out, outside stuff, but then we're thinking it. Now, I understand this. People can't read our minds. So they really don't know the degree of what we're thinking about people or situations. But the reality is that Jesus says, you think it, and if it's evil, it's sin. Okay? But I want to give you an example of how even subtle this is. Think of, have you ever, maybe have you done this with your son or with, with mom, and watched a mom or dad where, you know, did you ever go up and hit any your siblings? Do you have any brothers and sisters? One time. Okay, one time. He deserved it, though. <laughs> he deserved it. But what if you go up to him, and your mom and dad, your mom comes to you and says something like this, Scott, go tell your brother you're sorry, and, and you do this, I'm sorry, and, and you know deep down 
you're still throwing evil darts at the guy, at your brother. Do you understand the tension that you have at that point is that while you're outside, the words are coming out, I'm sorry. The inside is still going, I want to kill you. I want to hit you. I want to knock you down. Do you understand the tension that at that point? So the second level of sin goes way beyond our moral actions. I, I got to point out something here. You go, why did Jesus point this out to the Pharisees here? He's speaking to the Pharisees here. And it's because of this. Their definition of good, of righteousness, that word, that church word of righteousness, they believe that if you obey the laws, keep the external behaviors good on the outside, then they deem themselves, they looked at themselves and they could say, I'm a righteous person. I don't do those sins that everybody else is doing. And Jesus comes along and he shatters that for them and he wants to flip on the light and basically say, guys, you got stuff in your basement. You really have no idea what's about it. Kind of ups the ante, doesn't it, in terms of the understanding of sin. But Scott, I got some bad news for you. There's a basement below the basement. There's a ladder in that basement that goes down to another level. And there's no windows on this level. And there's a layer of sin that people oftentimes I find do not realize. Even within the church, they don't think in these terms. And let me, let me put that picture up there. There's what we, as we decide what is good and what is evil. Now here's where it comes from. It comes from that phrase, that sign, Genesis 3. And we looked at that last week. But what God is basically Satan coming to say, God's keeping something from you guys. And but let me show you the response of, of the serpent and look at this lie that he said. Look at Genesis 3, 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. I don't know what has just gone on there. Satan created doubt. And being the father of lies, he slants things in such a way that challenges the goodness of God. See, God is keeping something from you. He really doesn't have your best interest in mind. He knows that if you eat it, man, your eyes are going to be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, for everybody here, if, if you... Um, I want to go deeper in this. I went to Genesis 3 last week. I brought in Romans 1, which I'd encourage you to listen to if you weren't here. But understand this. When one crawls down that ladder, below that basement level, what we find is we believe the lie. We exchange the truth of God for a lie, and we said we claim the right to determine what is sin. But I got a problem. There's another, there's a third layer of sin. This third layer, then we'll describe it this way. I'll put it on the screen. We claim the right to be our own God, decide what is good and what is justified. Key terms, God, justified. And we decide then what is now sinful and what isn't. Again, again as you dig in that, you understand God is only the one that can claim and say, this is good, this is evil. 
This is justified. This is not justified. God is the one that has to do that. He determines it. But let me illustrate it for you farther even. I, I want to put a, script, uh, a, a picture of my granddaughter on. This is Addie. And Addie's about, she's actually five now, but this is about a year and a half uh, when we took this picture. And I think, you know what? She's smiling, she's cute, she's got a great personality, a good disposition. She even obeys most of the time. She has more hair than I do, so it doesn't come from me. Uh, but I believe that within her, listen to this, she has the potential and is more than willing to lie. She is more than willing to deceive. And no one taught her how to deceive I, maybe she got it from grandma. I'm not sure. But, <laughs> but but understand, she can do it. At a year and a half, she was doing it. Now, now Scott, she can't express it fully in words, obviously. But in her heart, there's the ability for her to thumb her nose at her mom and dad and say, I don't care about your rules. See, within that child, that little girl, there's a desire that says this, life should be centered around me. She wants to be the queen of her world. You see, that's the deeper level of understanding of sin, this third layer. She already has a basement below the basement at a year and a half. And it draws her to have the desire for autonomy to claim the right to decide what is best for her life. And you catch this. You know what? If a child can do that, I'll guarantee you, we as adults can do the very same thing. And especially, Scott, you understand how it manifests itself in a marriage as well. So, Scott, do you think you ever claim the right to decide what is right and okay in your marriage? Maybe on occasion. Okay. Let me ask you this. Do you ever put up walls and keep your wife emotionally away from you? Yeah. So who decided that was okay? Me. Do you understand the challenge in terms, folks, in terms of justification? See, as adults here, the flesh, when you talk about that word flesh, understand that it longs to decide what's right, decide what's good, what's best, what is bad, what is justified. So you think of marriage when a fight occurs, for example, between people. Words that come out that are hurtful and obviously are meant to damage and then the looks on top of it. But the words actually that come out is just the surface one. The looks would be that second layer, but the justifying that words that say, you know what, you're a bad person. You're the one that's the problem in the marriage. Those things come from that level, this third level in terms of marriage. But there's this idea that I get the right to determine what's okay and what's not okay, even in a marriage. You know what? I, I see marriages and they do this. I have the right to be angry with you, with my spouse. I have the right to decide that you hurt me first. Therefore, I have the right to come back and hurt you as well. I'm justified in that. And if you put up a wall, I have the right to put a wall up. And you know what? I'm not going to talk to you for a couple days. See, I'm justified in that. I have the right to do that. That is believing the lie and living independently from God. Now, I, I want to point something out to the audience here. I, I need to 
tell you one piece here is that I use these four levels of sin when I share the gospel as well. And I began to weave them into my presentation of what they, what Christ means to them. But I, when I try to sense where they're at spiritually, I often come to this stage and walking through these, and I ask a question. Has there ever been a point in your past where you have really within your heart said, I will give up control, this level three, to play God? I'm going to ask God, I'm going to let you be God fully. And it's interesting how many times when I've used this, I remember one very specifically back in in Baxter at the church there, a a gal who people would have looked and said, this person was a spiritual person. Yeah, there were some struggles, but everyone would have deemed them far along in their faith. and, And all of a sudden these words come out of her mouth and says, you know what? I don't think I've ever done it. I've never given up fully and said, God, you can be God. Do you understand the challenge in that for us? But Scott, I got some bad, more bad news for you. <laughs> There's a fourth level. There's another basement to that. There's a third level basement there, and there's a ladder that goes down another floor yet. And it's dark, it's cold, it's musty. And this is the deepest level of sin in our souls and our hearts. And understand, it addresses the motivation of why we want to decide to play God. Why we say, I have the right to independence and I can choose what's good, what's justified. So that picture of level four, let's put a picture out there. This is the where outward sin, thought sin, deciding what is right, what's good, It comes from this, a heart of pride and consuming self-love. See, going down to this fourth level comes from pride. And at the most basic level, pride is nothing more than this, consuming self-love. It's loving the self more than anything else. And you understand, this is where the heart, when Jesus talks about the heart, this is the place. It's the motivational center of our lives. But let me show you where this actually comes from, a biblical passage on this. This is from Isaiah chapter 12. And it's a section, you understand, where Israel's kind of talking against Babylon, but there's a double meaning happen that's taking place in this passage. And it is really also referring to this first sin in creation. Adam and Eve was the second sin. This is the first one. Look at Isaiah 14, verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Now, that word day star there, that's actually another name for Lucifer. Okay, but you notice there, I, 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 I. There's five eyes there. So at some point, what was taking place at Satan in this sin, he was feeding his self-love. I'm the most beautiful angels. And I now, because I love myself, deserve to be worshipped just like God. I get to play God 
just like God or actually be my own God. So I will ascend to heaven. I'm going to work for the, that the creation now would also worship me and that he would get creation to worship themselves. Now, this self-love launched them into sin and it came to infect everybody in this world, even my, my sweet granddaughter. So what's your thought on this? This is all good and, and everything, but how does it impact me? How does it... Uh, understand this. When you say those hurtful words toward your wife, when you desire to win the argument, the desire to prove her to be the bad person in the marriage, the one that's the most at most the biggest problem in the marriage, the desire to define her issues as worse than your issues, that desire for those things comes from your consuming self-love. Because you love yourself, therefore you're going to lower them and you want to elevate yourself. It's your self-love, Scott. That is the basis of why you do the things you do. Now, you catch where I've been trying to take him. I want him to move from a moral sin to a place where he's beginning to go that I'm choosing to play God, but I'm also looking for where does that come from? And it's the pride, it's the self-love, it's, it's what Satan did in the first sin of all of creation. But let me, I want to put a statement on the screen. One of the consequences of this is that our self-love and pride can breed excuses about our real spiritual condition. At the heart of self-love is justification, saying, I get to do this, I can say this, I can act like this on the outside, I can think this, I can choose to be God, all because of a deep, consuming self-love. Um, Scott, what are your thoughts? This is not a part of our letting him speak here to you guys. <laughs> so, if, I don't know, a few weeks ago, Ken threw this question at us and said, what is sin? And I had to evaluate. Um, I, I described it as you know, sin level one. And, and I understood sin level two, that in my mind I can think. But levels three and four I had never delved into. I never touched to see that. You know, Ultimately, I'm choosing to play God. I'm determining what's right and wrong. Um, and as I go through my days now, um, I'm lining up those sins in my life. And if you don't have any sin to line up against this, praise God, you're perfect. Um, but I'm not. Um, even at work, that, that co-worker that, that, that does me wrong, that I don't speak out against him. But what I do is I choose to be God in, in, in withholding that love that we're supposed to have for our neighbor. Um, I choose that he don't deserve it. I choose that he hasn't earned it. I choose that I'm not going to give it to him. Um, and that's my heart. Be careful what you ask God to reveal to you sometimes because um, he'll reveal that that heart is ultimately evil. Um, through this teaching is kind of where he's got me at right now. I have to watch daily, hour by hour sometimes, what is that motive behind that comment, behind that look, or behind that thought? Challenge you to apply it to your life.
Yeah. So I'm going to let Scott leave here. He's going to go back and ask for forgiveness from his wife. <laughs> but let, let me just push this for a couple minutes here. Where is freedom found? And, and here's the challenge. I'll, I'll even put it in marriage. I was talking to somebody in after the, the sermon on the, on the first hour. And the reality is that if we don't deal with our self-love, if we're stuck in loving ourselves, how do we relate to people in a healthy way? You see, the challenge is if we don't have a capacity to love, if, if people tore apart our lives and it was about, we might even hide the outward actions, but the inward heart, and we're still deciding, we're still justifying. If our loves are still, if our heart is still consumed with self-love, we end up justifying our ability not to love well. It applies to marriage. It applies to our friendship. It applies even the way we look at the world and our disgust for the world that we don't have a capacity to even love them purely with what God calls us toward. Now, understand this issue of self-love. I never was exposed to it for years and years and years. And uh, again, a friend of mine comes and introduces me to Augustine. Augustine or Augustine was, was maybe the most influential uh, theologian of all time, about 400 AD. And his definition of sin was this. Consuming self-love equals sin. And even Martin Luther came along a number of hundreds and thousand years later, 1400, 1500, and he comes along and he says this of sin. Sin is nothing more than love curved in. We try to love, it goes out, and it comes back to us. And we have no capacity. See, we're created to love. But it's our loving of the self. It's where does the love go? Does it go to God? Ultimately, you go, no. It's coming back to the self. And everything that we do is feeding our own self-love. And again, it's a level that we really at times don't want to go toward. But that phrase, you've overcome the evil one. You understand what's happening. Power is beginning to be built in such a way that sin is not holding them back. Satan and the tricks of Satan are beginning to be identified. They're beginning to believe God that what he says is true, not what the media says is true, not what others think that God says, is what does God say is actually true and right. And yet we have to realize that there's a battle with our flesh that keeps pulling us over and over again. Can it's about your love. It's about yourself. And recognize how subtle it can be. This is where I think we think it's just blatant. You go, no, if I come home someday and it's been a hard day or whatever, that you, we, we, you walk into the house and, and all of a sudden I have a wife who needs to be loved, but I do something like this. What if I come in and kind of plop myself down in the easy chair and say this, oh, it's been a terrible day. Do you realize what the possibility of what the motive was of my heart at that point and probably is or when I do that it's basically say this Deanna you minister to me first I need to be loved first before I love you you need to serve me give me some time give me a glass of water give me a soda 
stay away from me for a little while because I need some pity or whatever in that. But Deanna could be open if, when she was, I think when kids, we had kids, if she opened the door and said, oh, I've had a terrible day, would you just take the kids? And, and, and you understand that itself could be sinful and that all what she's wanting is it's about her. In the same way, it could be just about her wanting me to minister to her first. Do you see how subtle it can be in a marriage or any relationship? It's this idea of of walking through the levels of sin we must get and we must begin to understand and look and hold up a mirror. James 1 says we look in the mirror, but it's so easy to turn that mirror away from us and for anybody to expose our own self-love. But I hear, hear, last, I got to remind you of this. Jesus died for my moral sins, the outward sins that I've done. He died for the evil thoughts that I have thought lots of times. He died for that, nailed them to the cross. All those times that I played God and still play God, do you realize that he died for us? And even the future times when I do it, He takes those sins and he nails them to the cross. But even this level, number four, this idea of that my consuming self-love, when I want to make the world centered around me, do you realize that Jesus died for that as well? And he wants to take my self-love and through the power of the Holy Spirit, he wants to put his heart into me that I would reflect his love going out. That's his desire. And we're going to get into it more when we talk about moving from a young man and young woman to a father and a mother and what that looks like. Because there's another image there we we need to build on. See, God wants us to be set free from our own plain God, our own own self-love. He wants to give us freedom. Freedom to love is is really where he wants us to go. But to end on this, I would say this. There might be people in here, I don't know all of you at all, but the realization there might be some of you that you have, you've, you, you, you're here at church, you go to church, you attend church, but maybe you've come to a place where when I ask that question, have you ever come to a place where you said, I bow before God and God, I'm going to let you, you deserve to be God. I want to let you be God in my life. And you open up your palms. Have you done that? Have you allowed him to be the one and the Holy Spirit to convict you when you do that? Or are you still maintaining this surface understanding of sin? I'm just trying harder. So the scale goes down. So it's all about my effort. And I would say this. Open up your palms to him. And when I pray, I would just ask that maybe you want to pray to God and say, God, I want to give you my life and give you control today, that you would be the one that would shape my desires, that you would change my heart from self-love to other love. Let's stand and pray.